Good morning. My name is Adam, if we haven't met, and it's uh, really great to have you with us today. You know, on Tuesday night, I, along with a few friends, did what millions of other people have done recently. I went to the movies to see the latest Top Gun movie. Now, don't worry, I won't give away any spoilers, but there was a repeated refrain that came up at a number of points through the movie. There was a line that popped up at a number of key points. The line was this, it's not the plane, it's the pilot. It's not the plane, it's the pilot. In other words, it's not what you're flying, it's who is flying. Now, what is true for Tom Cruise and for aerial combat is also true for the Christian life. It's not about who we are. It's not mainly about what we have or what we do. It's not about our abilities and our buildings and our resources and our programs. It's mainly about who is in us. It's mainly about who is with us. It's mainly about who is guiding us. And this is what we're looking at today. We're looking at what happens after Jesus' resurrection and return to heaven. In other words, what happens after Jesus leaves? Are we left alone to rely on our own resources, to do what we do under our own strength? Or does God give us help from above? Does God give a pilot to guide us safely home? Now, if you haven't been around, we've been in a sermon series that we've called The Bible, a story that makes sense of life. We've been looking at the big picture of the Bible. The Bible's a big book, and we want to know how does it all fit together, and how does it make sense of our lives? Now, so far, we've looked at the story of the Old Testament. That was the first six weeks. Then Last week, we looked at the first four books of the New Testament, the four Gospels which tell us about Jesus' life and mission and message. And today, we're looking at what happens next. In fact, you can see the graphic on the screen. We are somewhere today between the L and the E. The L represents the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, His first coming from heaven to earth. The E, though, represents his return from heaven in the future to make all things new. Now, we're somewhere in between that. And today, we want to ask the question, well, how do we live faithfully for Jesus in this in-between time? How do we live between the first coming of Jesus and his return? And this is really what the rest of the New Testament is all about. You can see on the screen, there'll be a graphic which shows you all the different books of the Bible. Now, so far, we've looked at all of the story up to the Gospels, and you see after the Gospels, there is the book of Acts. Now, Acts is all about the story of the early church. And then after Acts, there is a series of 21 letters. These were letters that were written to various churches and church leaders. And really, they are about how do we live faithfully for Jesus in this in-between time? What are we supposed to be doing as we await Jesus' return in the future. This is where we kind of left the story last week with the resurrection of Jesus. He was raised from death. He he defeated all of our enemies. 
And then over the next 40 days, he began to appear to the disciples and to many others. He began to teach them about the kingdom of God. He began to show them how he fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. Now, if you were one of the disciples, you'd be getting pretty excited at this point. You'd be thinking the end is near. Jesus is about to obliterate all rivals and he's about to establish his kingdom forever. It's about to be full time and we're going to finish on top. This is exactly what the disciples were thinking. Look at Acts chapter 1 verse 6. Then they, that's the disciples, gathered round Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, is this what we've been waiting for? Are you going to get rid of the Romans? Are you going to give us our independence? Are you going to put us at the top of the pecking order? The disciples thought that the end was nigh and they were about to finish on top. But they've misunderstood because Jesus is not simply concerned for Israel. Jesus is concerned for all people everywhere. Do you remember the promise that was given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12? All peoples on earth will be blessed through the one that is to come. And so Jesus says to the disciples, no, 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 the message is about to go viral. The good news is about to go global, even to the ends of the earth. Jesus broadens their expectations. But imagine their shock when Jesus turns to them and he says, the message is going to go to the ends of the earth and you are going to be my witnesses. You are going to be the ones that are going to carry my message. You are going to be the ones that are going to share it. This is what Jesus says to the shocked disciples next in Acts chapter 1. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, the Bible has a lot of twists and turns, but surely this is one of the best. Right at the moment of Jesus' crowning glory, he's paid for sins, he's defeated death. Right at the moment when it seems like the right time for him to go on a worldwide preaching tour, to release a few books, to host a podcast, Jesus leaves. He hands the baton over to ordinary human beings like you and like me. Now, why on earth would Jesus do this? He knows us pretty well. Why would he leave his mission in our hands? Surely he knows that we don't have what it takes. I mean, if you were to ask me to sing like Pavarotti or to write like William Shakespeare or to run as fast as Usain Bolt, I would say, I can't do it. Don't have what it takes. Why would Jesus king over all things, why would he leave his mission in our hands? Well, the answer is that he's not leaving it in our hands entirely, because he promises to send help. He will not leave us alone. He promises that he will send the Holy Spirit. That's what he says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, it will be made available to you and to me. It's not the plane, it's the pilot. And today, we're going to dig into the question, well, how does the Holy Spirit help us to live in this in-between time? How does the Holy Spirit help us to live faithfully for Jesus as we await his return in the future? That's what we're going to dig into today, and we're going to look at it under three simple points. 
The Spirit fills us up. The Spirit brings us in. And then the Spirit sends us out. Let's have a look. Number one, the Spirit fills us up. Now, this promise that Jesus makes to send the Holy Spirit is fulfilled 10 days later. 10 days after Jesus returned to heaven, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon his people. And it happened on the day that we've come to know as Pentecost. We celebrated Pentecost Sunday a couple of weeks ago. But originally, Pentecost was a Jewish festival. It was a celebration of the harvest. And people from all over would flock to Jerusalem from many different nations to celebrate Pentecost. And so at this point in the story, Jerusalem would have been heaving. People from all different nations would have been there. The streets would have been packed. And among them was a small remnant of Jesus' followers. Only about 120 people at this point in the story. And they're meeting together, and look what happens next. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, now this is a pretty incredible scene because this is a pretty incredible event. And, And the symbolism of wind and fire is telling us something. If you know the Old Testament, you'll know that they're telling us that God has arrived. I mean, think about wind. If you you go right back to Genesis 1, you remember the Spirit of God, or literally the wind of God, was hovering over the waters. Then in Genesis 2, God breathes His Spirit, or literally His breath, into the nostrils of Adam to bring him to life. Well, something similar is happening again at Pentecost. The presence of God, which has been separated from humanity since the fall, it's being poured out once again. God is bringing us with our stone, cold, dead heart to life again. It's the same with fire. Throughout the Bible, fire represents the presence of God. Think about the burning bush in Exodus. Or or think about Mount Sinai when God descends in flames. The the fiery personal presence of God. Now, Now for the ordinary Jew, the idea that God's fiery presence could be experienced up close and personal, it would have been unimaginable. And yet here, the the presence of God is descending, and it's not just descending upon God's people generally, the, the the tongues, the flames of fire are resting on God's people individually. The point is that God's Spirit is filling up His people. And this is a promise that was given in the Old Testament, in the book of Joel, for example. Joel wrote many years before this event, he said, and God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I love what an author named Andrew Ollerton writes about this event. He says, while Pontius Pilate reclined in his palace and Jewish priests busied themselves in the temple, the Holy Spirit came upon poor slaves, teenagers and blue-collar workers. When God's presence is poured out, it doesn't begin with the powerful and the elite. It begins with the ordinary people like you and me. And this is what the New Testament goes on to teach. I mean, this is just mind-blowing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Paul says that each individual believer is kind of like a mobile temple. 
that, that we are carrying the presence of God in and with us wherever we go. What an incredible truth to think about. Perhaps one, it's, it's a truth that we don't think about enough. Because if we did, it would surely shape and change the way that we live. For example, it's like the story I heard this week about a, a lady that lived in Scotland uh, near Balmoral Castle, which, by the way, is one of the Queen of England's favorite places to go on holiday. Now, this lady's family, they were invited to the annual Balmoral Ball. And at the ball, they actually met the royal family. And as it turns out, they got on really well. Now, imagine this lady's shock when a few days later, she gets a message saying that the royal family would like to come over to her house for tea. Now, can you imagine what you would do if you got that message? She goes into overdrive, cleaning, scrubbing, polishing, just cleans the whole house from top to bottom, gets it all ready for the royal family. And she eventually, she goes outside to collect uh, some flowers to put on the table, and she says she was shaking like a leaf. Until in the stillness of that moment, she remembered, the King of Kings is with me every day. It's only the Queen. And she was able to relax and to enjoy the presence of the royal family. And they had a wonderful afternoon. Now, I hate to break it to you, but the Queen is probably never going to visit your home. Maybe, but, but probably not. But as a temple of the Holy Spirit, you are filled with the presence of God each and every day. What a privilege. Now, what does this mean practically for, for you and for me? Well, it means lots of things, but it at least means that you and I are never alone. The Holy Spirit, the Greek word for Holy Spirit is parakletos. We translate it as advocate or comforter or helper. It means someone who stands beside you. Like a lawyer that is defending you or like a paramedic that is helping you. It means someone who walks alongside you, like a friend who is with you. Maybe like a friend who even carries you when you need it. In fact, it does remind me of a famous poem. Maybe you've heard of it. When I was growing up, both of my Olmers had this poem on the back of their toilet door. Now, why it was on the back of the toilet door, I'm not sure. I think it was because they assumed that was the one place where their grandkids would actually sit down and maybe read it. Now, it's the poem, it's called Footprints. And there are two footprints in the, the sand side by side. Now, one set of footprints is supposed to represent the author, and the other is supposed to represent the Lord Jesus. But when the going gets tough, there's only one set of footprints. And the author, in this moment, assumes that they've been abandoned. But it's actually in this moment they realize that they've been carried. And this is what God's presence, presence does for us. The Holy Spirit is the parakletos, the one who comes alongside, the one who stands beside, the advocate, the comforter, the helper. It means that we're never alone. It also means that we are being changed. We are being transformed. Paul writes in Romans 8, he says, By the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body. The Holy Spirit not only comforts and guides us, the Holy Spirit also changes and transforms us. And this is not something spooky. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't possess us. Now, the Holy Spirit is making us truly human again. The Holy Spirit is making us who we were meant to be. The Holy Spirit is giving us our dignity back. The Holy Spirit is removing the dross of sin, giving us back what we've lost. 
the warmth of God's love, shaping us into the goodness of God's character. I mean, the Holy Spirit is forming in us the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Who doesn't want a life shaped like that? And this is what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. Walking alongside us, comforting us, guiding us, and changing us more and more into the image of Jesus. The Holy Spirit fills us up. This brings us to our second point, because the Holy Spirit also brings us in. You know, we've seen how fire is used as imagery to describe the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this is so appropriate because fire has a way of drawing people in and bringing us together. I don't know about you, but I've sat around a lot of campfires in my time. And they've always been great times of community and fellowship. Sharing stories, singing songs, roasting marshmallows. Fire brings us together and it draws us closer. And this is what the Holy Spirit does as well. And this is why what we see at the end of Acts 2, after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit is poured out, a close-knit community begins to form. This was our second reading. And this really shows us an important truth because when we enter into relationship with God, we also enter into relationship with God's people. When God brings us to himself, he also brings us to his people. It's always both. It's like when you're born into, as a baby, you're born into a family. Well, when you're born spiritually, you're born into God's family, the church. Now, like any family, the church is not perfect. In fact, it can be painful and difficult. You even see this in the book of Acts. By the time you get to chapter 5 and chapter 6, there have been church members that have been caught stealing and lying. There's been tensions that have risen between different groups. Even when the Spirit is powerfully at work, church can be messy. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because church is filled with people like me, people like you, people who are still on a journey of being changed and transformed. But for all of the letdowns and for all of the disappointments, God has not given up on his church and neither should we. In fact, the New Testament says that the church is where God dwells. That God not only dwells in his people individually, but God also dwells among his people corporately. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul writes to this church in Corinth, and they were a messy church. A messy church. And he says, don't you know that you yourselves, that's plural, you together, us, are God's temple, the place where God dwells. And that God's spirit lives among you, plural, together. You see, we've been saying that the storyline of the Bible is the story of three ingredients, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And what we see here is that now that the spirit has been poured out, God's place is no longer the temple in Jerusalem. You can go to Jerusalem and you can see the temple mound, you can see lots of sites, but that's not the place in the world where God dwells. God's place is in the hearts and in the community of his people. And God's people are no longer just the nation of Israel. God's people is every believer, Jew and Gentile, in Christ Jesus. God's people is the church community. The church is where God dwells. What an amazing truth. And how does this shape the way that we approach church? How should this change the way we do church? 
Well, what can we learn from the example of the early church in that reading in Acts chapter 2? Well, I think when you read through that passage, what stands out immediately is their attitude, their passion. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves. They didn't show up when they felt like it. They didn't give when it was convenient. They didn't serve when it suited them. They didn't come late and, and leave early. They devoted themselves. They made it a priority. And, and what exactly was it that they devoted themselves to? What did they prioritize? Well, again, if you scan that passage, a few things stand out. Firstly, they devoted themselves to spiritual growth. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to, to doctrine and theology and knowing God's word, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, most likely referring to Lord's Supper, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to these spiritual disciplines and practices so that they might grow spiritually. Secondly, they devoted themselves to generosity. Verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They were generous. Thirdly, they devoted themselves to gathering together, both in large groups and in small groups. Look at verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, large groups, and then they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, smaller groups. Growth, generosity, and gathering. And you know, here at Oasis, we have the same priorities. We use different words, but they mean the same thing. Life in Jesus is about spiritual growth. It's about knowing Jesus through his word, through prayer, through Lord's Supper. That's our first priority. Our second is life together. This is about gathering together in large groups on a Sunday and then in smaller groups through the week. And then thirdly, our third priority is life for others. This is about generosity, giving our time and our talents and our treasures for the good of others. Life in Jesus, life together and life for others. These are the things that we must devote ourselves to. And what we see is in the early church, when they devoted themselves to these things, that it brought about glory to God and it brought more people into God's kingdom. Look at verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So let me ask you, what about you? Are you devoted to these things? Let me ask the question a little differently, and I don't ask it this way to make us all feel guilty or to make some of us feel proud or whatever it is. I just want us to reflect and to ask, well, am I prioritizing these things or am I, if I'm honest, sitting on the sideline? Let me, here's a question. If everyone in our church approached growth the way that you approach growth, would we be a growing church? If everyone in our church approached gathering the way that you approach gathering, would we gather together regularly? If everyone in our church approached generosity the way you approach generosity, would we be a generous church? Now, they're confronting questions, aren't they? But they're, sim they're meant to simply highlight that we need each other, that everyone has a role to play. And perhaps we need each other now more than ever. We need community now more than ever. I mean, even before COVID, before lockdowns and, and social distancing were a thing, there were studies that suggested we are more lonely and more isolated than ever before. I mean, thanks to social media, we, we are more connected 
than ever before, but at the same time, more isolated than ever before because online connection is no substitute for the real thing. And this is why we need to devote ourselves to fellowship. This is why, if we can, we need to move from church online to church in person. I was talking to someone last Sunday and they were saying to me how easy it is to watch church at home in your pajamas. And isn't that especially true as the weather gets a little bit colder? And they're right, it is easier, but it's not enough. God has designed us to need one another, to lean on each other. In fact, perhaps we could learn something from the sequoia tree. I discovered this this week, it's pretty amazing. The sequoia trees are the oldest and largest trees in the world. They can live for thousands of years and they can grow up to 80 meters tall. Now, what's the secret to their success? Well, it's found in their roots. But their roots actually don't go very deep. Their roots are quite shallow. But what they do is they interlock with the other roots around them. And so what looks like individual trees is actually a forest connected together, relying on one another. And that's how they're able to withstand the storms of life. And that's a picture of what the Spirit wants to do for us, to bring us together, to rely on one another. The Spirit fills us up. The Spirit brings us in. And then thirdly and finally, the Spirit sends us out. See, the Spirit is not only like a fire that we gather around, the Spirit is also a wind that sends us out into God's world. And this really was the heart of Jesus' mission for his disciples. He says to them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, this verse is really the key verse in the book of Acts. It's kind of like the table of contents because the story begins in Jerusalem, then it moves to Judea and to Samaria, and it goes really to the ends of the earth because it ends in Rome, the center of the ancient world. But it kind of ends in a funny way because you've got the Apostle Paul at the end of the book, and he's in prison. Now, he's sharing the gospel with whoever will listen to him, but we're kind of waiting to see, well, what's going to happen to Paul? Is he going to be released or is he going to be executed or what's going to happen? And here's the thing, Luke doesn't tell us. The author of Acts, Luke, he just kind of finishes the story suddenly and abruptly and he, we're not told what happens to Paul. Now, why would he end the book this way? Run out of parchment? Like, oh dear, well, they'll find out one day. No, no, no. Acts is unfinished because the story is not over. The story continues to this day and you and I are part of it. We have stepped onto the pages of this story. We're like Acts chapter 735 or something like that. We have a role to play. And here's the thing. Jesus is too great. The news is too good. The future is too bright for us to sit on the sidelines. I don't know about you, but I want to give myself to this mission. I don't want to stand before Jesus one day and, and, and say, well, sorry, Lord, I was distracted by too many other things. I want to be part of what God is calling us to do. I love the way Ray Ortland puts it. He says, you're not here in God's world by accident. You have been sent here by God to serve him on mission. So it is not true that the world is too big and you are too small for you to make a difference. You have God backing you up.
It's not the plane. It's the pilot. And you might say, Adam, you don't understand. I'm tired. Life is busy. I don't know the answers. I don't have what it takes. And I would say, well, you're the perfect candidate. Because God loves to use weakness. When it comes to human beings, it's actually all he's got. God loves to use weak and fearful people for his glory. So the question is, well, what about you? Maybe for you, you need to put your trust in Jesus. To receive all that he has done for you. To receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit and to become part of God's family. Maybe for you, you need to come back to Jesus. Maybe you've become distracted by other things. You've pushed God to the margins of your life. And you've forgotten that God is with you by His Spirit. You've neglected the gathering of God's people. Today you're saying to God, I want to be led by your Spirit. I want to walk in step with your Spirit on your mission for your glory. I want to be filled up brought in and sent out. It's what, it's what God wants to do for each and every one of us. And let's do it together. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you have not left us alone, but you have given us your Holy Spirit Thank you that we will never be alone. Thank you that we have a a future to look forward to. And thank you that we have a purpose and a mission to be a part of. And so, Lord, where we have been sidelined, where we have been spectating, by your Spirit, help us to step into what you would have for us. We can't do everything, but we can all do something. We can all begin to show and to share your love and your goodness and your greatness to those around us. And so where we feel weak and inadequate and ill-equipped, help us to realize that this doesn't disqualify us, it actually qualifies us. And help us to put all of our confidence in you. Thank you that you have taken hold of us, that you'll never let us go. And help us to become the church, the people that you're calling us and have created us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.